doing a series on joy here at the moment, and and the the aim of this series is that we um, will get happier. Is it right if I stick with this mic, John? That doesn't mess anything up, does it? It's just easy if I cough, I can I can move it away more easily. Um, so want us to, want us to be happier. Want us to be would like like us to be happy, but I know. Uh, for some with life circumstances, happy can feel a long way off. So at least to be happier. Uh, that's, that, that's the ambition for us in, in this series. And uh, wants us to be happy in God. And there are all kinds of different things that make us happy, aren't there? Did you see it this week? There was a big survey which the Office for National Statistics are doing each year now about happiness. Did a survey of 300,000 adults across, across the UK, and we're looking at different factors which affect how satisfied people feel with with life. And there's some interesting things revealed there about uh, how the stage of life you're at and where you live affect your sense of satisfaction and how happy you are. Very interesting. The happiest age group are those who are aged 65 to 79. So if you're in that age group, well done. God bless you. The uh, age group with the lowest level of satisfaction were those aged 45 to 59, which uh, Grace and I are now in. And uh, men are actually slightly less satisfied than women. So if you're a 45 to 59-year-old bloke like me, then you're in the most miserable category. And there are a number, <coughs> excuse me, a number of reasons for, suggested for why that might be. Uh, it's just kind of life pressure that uh, if you're in that age, that kind of middle age band, then you probably still got or might likely to have dependent children who you're looking for, and probably increasingly starting to have um, dependent parents as well. All those people in the older age band who are so happy are being looked after by us. Um, <laughs> And it's, it's, a, it's an age band when things tend to get a bit pressured at work. It could be a financial, a particular season of financial pressure. And I, I, think, I think I first observed this probably about 20 years ago, looking at those who are in their 50s, late 40s, 50s, that it's a stage of life when you kind of can often get disappointed. You suddenly find that your boss at work is younger than you. And think, well, that's it, okay? That's, I've got as far as I'm going to get. And... Um, uh, my, my kids are at two different schools and both head teachers at the schools my kids are, are younger than me. Which just seems wrong because head teachers are always going to be older than you, aren't they? It's just wrong. Um, where, where you, so your age group affects your happiness. Also where you live. Um, actually, Paul is slightly happier than Bournemouth. Hey. On a scale of, of um, 0 to 10, people in Bournemouth put themselves at 7.4 whereas Paul is a mighty 7.5. That, that point one makes all the difference. <laughs> um, the, the largest percentage of people rated themselves as, as at a nine or 10 out of 10 were in Mid-Sussex, 39% of people in Mid-Sussex. Mid uh, the lowest number of people rated themselves at a nine or a 10 was Wolverhampton, completely understandable, <laughs> um, which was 21%. Now there's not much we can do about our age. You can make a decision about where you live, but even, to be honest, the difference between Mid-Sussex, 39% very happy, and Wolverhampton, 21% very happy, it's not really a huge difference, and the reality is that 
no matter how old you are or no matter where you live, you're still there. And that's really the issue. The really issue is me. It's us. How happy are we and what are we doing to maximize our happy, happiness regardless of our life stage or the place in which we live? And for us here, as we're thinking about these things, it's really how can we maximize our happiness in God? How can we be happy in God? What can we do to get ourselves as happy as we possibly can be, uh, regardless of all the other fact factors in our lives? And this is something that Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about in the, in the letter to the Philippians. We're up to uh, chapter 2, Paul's letter to the Philippians, page 691. I'm going to read the first four verses of, of this. And I want really to think about two things this morning. Uh, the first one is how we can maximize our joy by experiencing the benefits of the gospel. And the second thing I want us to think about is how we maximize our joy by pursuing unity as we serve one another. So let's read what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. King Jesus, I pray that you would help us to receive this word. I pray these instructions, exhortation from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, which now are applied to us here in this place at this time. I pray that we would apply them. I pray that the word of God would be powerful in us. It would bear fruit in us. I pray, Jesus, that we would seek to maximize our joy that we'd get as happy in God as we can. And you'd help us to see how to do that as we investigate this over the next few minutes together. Amen. First thing, we maximize our joy by experiencing the benefits of the gospel. If we're going to enjoy something, you actually have to deliberately choose to enjoy it. It's no good having something which is potentially enjoyable and locking it away in a cupboard. You actually have to get hold of it and enjoy the thing. If you have a good bottle of wine you can look at it and you can think this is going to taste good but until you actually open it and smell it and drink it you don't actually experience whether or not it is good and as Christians we can be kind of like those who would take a good bottle of wine and lock it away in the cupboard and say oh, I've got a really good bottle of wine maybe one day I'll try it but you never experience it and we mustn't do that we need to be those who open the bottle of gospel wine and experience it, savor it, drink it. And Paul's expectation and experience is that the gospel is really good stuff. That it's not something to be locked away in a cupboard and just imagine, but it's something to, to smell and feel and taste and touch, experience and enjoy. That we experience the benefits of the gospel. And see where he starts and these instructions to the Philippians. He says, if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. If, if you have experienced these things, have you experienced these things, Philippians? Have you experienced these things, Gateway Church? And the if assumes that they have. Paul's assumption is that they have experienced these things. There is encouragement. There is love. There is the activity of the Holy Spirit amongst us. There is affection. There is sympathy. 
Open the bottle, smell it, drink it, taste it, experience it. So let's uh, just run through these things one by one, which Paul says we're to experience as we seek to maximize our joy. First thing, there is encouragement in Christ. Encouragement can be incredibly powerful. We all know just how encouraging encouragement can be. And that's especially the case when encouragement comes from somebody who, in a sense, is kind of above us. Someone we respect or admire or seek to emulate. If, if you're a child, the thing that you look for most is the encouragement, the well done from your parents. And we all know, and we all have experienced one way or the other, the results of either having parents who encouraged us or parents who didn't. And uh, all of us as adults will still, in some, to some level, reflect that. If our parents encouraged us and affirmed us and said, well done, that would have, made, that would have changed our psychology. And if that never happened, that would have affected our psychology as well. Or maybe there's, uh, when you're growing up and you go to school, there's a teacher you particularly like. You're looking for that word of encouragement. Maybe in the workplace, uh, a boss who you particularly admire. And if they say, well done, if they encourage you, it's, it's empowering. It's, it's confidence building. Encouragement can be incredibly powerful. And what Paul says to us here is that for us Christians, there is encouragement in Christ. This isn't just the well done of another human being. This is the well done of Jesus, God himself. He is cheering us on. We have encouragement because we're encouraged in Christ. Think of some other scriptures which uh, help illustrate this. Hebrews 4.15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You know, that's so encouraging. Who is, who is, who's my high priest? Who's making the way open to God for me? Is it somebody who understands me or someone who's got no idea what it's like to be a human being? No, Jesus understands us intimately. He lived amongst us as a man. He experienced all the temptations that we experienced, but he did not give way to any of them. And this one is able then to bring us into the presence of God. He's encouraging us, this perfect high priest. Well, think about what it says in Romans 8, who is to condemn Christ Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. That's incredibly encouraging. Who's on our side? Who's looking out for us? Who is bringing us before his Father in heaven and saying, look at them, aren't they great? It's Jesus who's doing that. It's encouragement for us in Christ Jesus. And so if we feel discouraged, if we feel afflicted, if we feel confused, let's turn to Christ and see the encouragement that is ours in him our high priest, the one who intercedes with us, the one who is like us in every way, yet without sin. He who is cheering us on. He's, he's the one who's got our back. Look to him. Turn to Christ. Be encouraged in him. Experience the benefits of the gospel. Next thing Paul says is that there is comfort from love. You know, unconditional love is a great comfort. If there's someone in your life who you know is going to love you no matter what and won't stop loving you, that is an incredible comfort to know that person is there. And Paul, the point here is that if, you're, if you are a Christian, you have entered into that kind of love with God, an unconditional love for you. 1 John chapter 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
Look at the love that we've received in God, that he has declared us to be his children. So if life is making us feel uncomfortable, if we're feeling low on love, we need to look to Jesus, our brother, and to God, our Father, and to ask for the Spirit's help, to look for this comfort of love. And comfort is wonderfully comforting. But I think the kind of love, the comforting love Paul's talking about here isn't just something which is kind of cozy, but it's something which is really fortifying. Uh, In John 14, when Jesus is talking to the disciples, he says that he's going to send the paraclete, Greek word, and uh, the Holy Spirit. And that word paraclete is translated in different ways. In, In older versions of our Bibles, it's often translated as comforter. The comforter will come to you. Also translated as helper or counselor or fortify or encourager. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to comfort us, for us to know the love of God. Which is why the next thing that Paul says is that there is participation in the Spirit. Participation, fellowship with, membership with this Spirit of God who helps us, counsels us, fortifies us, encourages us, comforts us. In John 16, Jesus says to his disciples, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus says, everything the Father has, he shares with me. Everything I have, I'm sharing with you by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. By participation in the Spirit. Participation is this Greek word again, koinonia, which speaks about membership, fellowship, purpose and mission together. The Spirit of God is at work in us. If you've put your faith in Jesus and you've been called into partnership with the Spirit of God who brings you into an experience of all that Jesus has and all that Jesus has is all that the Father has. We're caught up in the work of God. And so we're to look for the way the Spirit of God calls us to work because we're participating with the Spirit. This week, In what ways can we participate in the work of the Holy Spirit? Each of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, each of us is called to this. This isn't something, there isn't some kind of secret hierarchy which you have to progress through and to get to a place where the Spirit of God can work through you to bless other people. You don't have to reach a certain qualification level to be able to do that. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been called into participation with the Spirit, which means that the Spirit of God wants to work through you to bless other people. This week... What will the Spirit of God do through each of us in order to help others see what it would be to know the benefits of the gospel? Paul says that there's affection and sympathy. Affection is our, is our concern for one another, that in our church family we're to be genuinely concerned for each other, for one another's well-being, for one another's health and happiness, for one another's joy. Paul has this kind of affection for the Philippians back in near the beginning of the letter, verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul has a a profound affection for the church in Philippi. He, He loves them. He desires to be with them. And we're called to have this kind of affection for one another. Affection and sympathy. To be sympathetic towards one another is to have a real heart for each other, a genuine care for others. And that has to be expressed tangibly. It has to be worked out in concrete actions. And we've been called into affection and sympathy because God himself 
is affectionate and sympathetic towards us. And that means that we should never listen to the lie that no one cares about us. Because Jesus cares. Jesus is full of affection and sympathy for us. And as those who've been called into this relationship with him, we're to demonstrate affection and sympathy to one another. There's this magnificent drink of gospel wine that God has given us by which we're to experience joy. We need to not lock it away in a cupboard. We need to keep taking it and savoring it and drinking it and sharing it between one another. We need to... We need to consciously think about the things that we have in Christ, this love and encouragement and participation in the Spirit, this affection and sympathy. Let's, let's think about it. And let's sing about it. Let's talk about it. Let's, let, let, let's consciously set our minds on it. Let's not keep it corked up, but let's get maximum joy. When we're together, when we're together in our, in our midweek meetings as we are at the moment, when we see each other during the week in different settings, when we're here together on a Sunday, let's, let's deliberately uncork the bottle of gospel joy. Let's think about the way in which Christ has encouraged us. Let's marvel at his affection and sympathy for us, which means we can show genuine love to each other. Let's think about the way that we've been called into mission participation with the Holy Spirit. Let's celebrate these things. If you're not a follower of Jesus, of course, also the invitation is for you that this is where joy is found, that you can be brought into this relationship with God. You can experience the encouragement of Christ. You can know the affection and sympathy of God. You can know participation in the Holy Spirit. You can know the love of God at work in your life. That's what the gospel is. It's not calling you to something rigid and, and lacking in life, but it's calling you to celebrate. It's causing, causing you to maximize joy to find happiness in God, to recognize that he is the one where real happiness is found. And so I'd want everybody, I'd love everybody in this room to go away this morning happier because we've again seen the wonder of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the savior of the gospel. We maximize our joy by experiencing the benefits of the gospel. And we maximize our joy, secondly, by pursuing unity in serving others. Verses 2 to 4 again. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is looking for the completion of his joy. Make my joy complete. Now, as you read this letter, it's very obvious that Paul is a joyful man. He's happy in God. <coughs> Excuse me. He's happy in God, and he's, he's happy about the church in Philippi. And they seem to be a great church. Some of the other letters that Paul writes to other churches are not quite so joyful because some of those other churches are doing daft things. And to read the letter to the Galatians or the first letter to the Corinthians, and a lot of those letters are kind of rebuke. Why on earth are you doing that when you should be doing this? There's, there's, that doesn't really feature in this letter to the Philippians. They, they were clearly a, a bunch of believers in Jesus who were happy in God and were doing well. And Paul loved them and they loved him. And he's happy, even though he's in prison in Rome, he's happy when he thinks about the Philippians. This is a, a fantastic group of believers in Jesus Christ. But he says, complete my joy. He, he wants a fuller joy. And the way that his joy is going to be made fuller is as he sees the Philippians pursuing unity together. 
And in a sense, there's nothing particularly profound about that. It's an observation anybody could make because it's obvious that where there's disunity, there's also unhappiness. Disunity creates unhappiness. When people are united and have got a sense of common purpose and identity and togetherness, that, that makes happiness. So in a sense, there's nothing particularly profound about what Paul is saying. It's obvious. Let's be united because we're going to be happier. The more united we are, the happier we're going to be. Complete my joy. Now, the Philippian church, it's a great church, but it's in a context of real pressure. Uh, at the end of chapter 1, we looked at it last week, if you were here, Paul talks about the way in which this church is engaged in conflict. And it seems that they were experiencing some frightening things. And I think the, the, the city of Philippi must have been a frightening place for believers in Jesus Christ at this time. It was a Roman city, and... Romans in that city were meant to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. And if you proclaimed another Lord as being more Lord than Caesar, that was a dangerous thing to do. And so to say, well, actually, no, Jesus is Lord, and his lordship is superior to the lordship of Caesar, that was a dangerous thing to do. And, and this was a small company of people in a, with a, this brand-new faith in Jesus Christ, this kind of strange Jewish sect that has suddenly appeared out of nowhere. And they were a minority group in a city that would have been hostile to their fundamental beliefs. And so there would have been all kinds of pressure they'd have experienced, all kinds of potentially frightening things coming their way. And when pressure comes upon us, that's when the cracks tend to get exposed, isn't it? That's when uh, divisions have potential to open up. If everything's going well, it's easy to be united. It's when the, it's when the pressure comes that you start to experience the divisions. And so it's especially in those times of conflict that unity counts. Now, we don't feel the same kind of pressure that the Philippians did. Thank God we don't live in a context where we're meant to declare Caesar as Lord, and if we declare Jesus is more Lord, we get in trouble. That's not, not our context, but there is conflict for us. And we can experience that internally. As a church, we can experience conflicts amongst us, the challenges that we face. Uh, I think even with the purchase of Ashley Road and looking to start there, it's fantastic for us. There's lots of excitement about it, which is great. But it also can bring some pressure. Uh, it does bring some pressure to kind of financially because we've got to stretch our budgets again. And that can even be little things. It's like uh, organizing kind of team members who's going to be where or timings of meetings uh, can cause some, some pressures. Oh, I like meeting at 10.30. I don't want to be a 10 o'clock person or... I prefer 10 rather than 10.30, and ah, you can have the 10 o'clock church versus the 10.30 church or whatever it might be. I mean, little things can cause, can cause divisions to start to open up. There's also external pressures that can come our way. We live in a, in a society where, which generally is, is pretty indifferent to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ and in many ways is, is increasingly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that can cause some pressure upon us. And there are all kinds of strange theological winds that blow around as well, and that can cause issues for us. And so whether it's internal pressures we experience or whether it's external pressures coming our way, the way we're going to maximize our joy is by pursuing unity. And Paul here urges a degree of unity that might strike us as a bit odd. In our context, we... we uh, we're happy to talk about unity, but we're happy to talk about unity more in the abstract than in, than in concrete reality. I think a, a good example was last year when the Rugby World Cup was on and had that terrible theme song with Paloma Faith warbling away every, before every match. The world in union. 
And it's like we can talk about the world and union being united by rugby, which of course is a bit fanciful anyway. But it's kind of abstract. Oh yeah, we're happy to talk about unity in that context, something which doesn't really in the end mean very much. But when we talk about the kind of unity that Paul's talking about here, it's, it's much more concrete and we can, be, we can be suspicious of that. I think one of the reasons why often people are hesitant about embracing the Christian faith is a concern about losing our individuality. If I become a Christian, does that mean that I stop being me? I just kind of get sucked up into this other thing. And we need to see that the reason that Paul urges unity is not to turn us into a, a bunch of uh, carbon copy automatons. The reason he urges unity is so that we can be happier. He wants us to be happy, and he says the way to be happy is to be united. If you want to maximize joy, stick together and serve one another. And so for the Christian, um, deferring to each other is the default position. That we're not about getting ahead. It's, normal life is often about getting ahead. It's about jockeying for my position and trying to maximize my advantage and and what Paul is urging us to here is a kind of unity which isn't about getting ahead but it's about getting equal it's about a unity which recognizes that we're together with a common purpose a common Lord we stick together and we serve one another and Paul says look you're gonna make my joy complete if you have that kind of attitude it means having the same outlook on life which is a gospel shaped outlook that we understand celebrate that we're encouraged by Jesus that we've experience the comfort of God's love, that we participate together in the Holy Spirit, that there's sympathy and affection from Christ for us and from us to one another, that we're to think about those things and express our unity in those things. And Paul gives six different ways in which this is to be lived out. He says, we're to have the same love. And this is a love like the love that Jesus Christ has for us. And one of the great sadness is that you can you can make a pretense of Christianity without actually experiencing and demonstrating the love of Christ. And Paul's already referred to this in verse 15 of chapter 1. He, he says, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. There are those in, in Rome where he is at this time in, in prison. There are other people who are preaching Christ, but weren't doing it out of an experience of love and in order to share the love of Christ. They were doing it in some way to kind of jockey for position out of envy and rivalry. And that's, that's tragic. What Paul's looking for in the Philippians and what we need to experience amongst us is the love of Christ, that we experience it and we demonstrate it. We increasingly demonstrate Christ's love to one another. So let's, let's do this. Let's, let's look for ways to demonstrate Christ-like love to one another. This week, what can I do tangibly to bless someone else? so that someone else might experience to some degree the love of Christ through me. What can I do? I need to think about that. You need to think about that. This week, tomorrow morning when we wake up, let, let, let's make that one of the kind of the first things we think. What can I do today to make the love of Christ tangible? If we do that, we'll, we'll increase our experience of joy. Our joy will be more complete. Paul says that they're to be in full accord uh, the expression there actually means to kind of be of one soul. He's talking about a deep friendship he wants them to experience together. And in church life, there is to be the sense of friendship, of sharing common life together. 
Uh, the way that we do life in 21st century Britain often keeps social distance between us, the way we organise our lives, the way that we work and the houses we live in, everything else. It doesn't naturally create context for community and friendship. And, and Paul says, be in full accord, be friends together, work at being close. It's good to work at friendship together. And I'm so grateful for the way that I experienced that again and again as being part of this church. Uh, a, it's a my trivial example, but I thought it was interesting. Was on, on Wednesday I had a school governors meeting, and we had the finance and uh, and premises committee meeting, and it was a very serious meeting. And it's serious stuff. School's got a big budget and uh, lots of issues, uh, but there wasn't much joy. And then I went straight from that to a church trustees meeting. And at the church trustees meeting, we spend most of our time talking about finance and premises. So it was the same two meetings. Uh, the school one, much bigger budget and a lot more staff, but the same kind of stuff, finance and premises. The big difference was that at the trustees meeting, it was fun. We, there was a lot of laughter together, even in the serious stuff we were talking about and some of the challenges we were facing. And, and why was that? It's because we're friends together. There's a sense of unity together, which bring some joy to proceedings. And so let's be of one accord. Let's be friends together. Let's look for the experience of God's joy amongst us as we do life together. Next thing Paul says is that we're to be of one mind. It kind of repeats this phrase, this one-mindedness. And this is a, it's a, it's a single-minded focus on the, on the essentials of the gospel and its implications, that we're clear about our purpose, that we understand that what it is to experience gospel benefits, the encouragement of Jesus Christ, the participation of the Spirit, the comfort of love, affection, and sympathy. We understand that, and we're focused on those things. And I think that the challenge for the Philippians and the challenge for us is, is to develop corporate positive thinking. And we can, we can be kind of suspicious of, of positive thinking. We can see it as something a bit flimsy and a bit false. But, but actually, it's essential that we need to think about life positively. Because... So much of what life throws at us and so much of what comes through the media is negative and the default human position is always to tilt towards the negative. It happens all the time. We get into conversation and we tilt towards the cynical and we tilt towards the negative and the news is always negative, of course it is, because that's the news and everything is kind of, by default, tilted towards the negative and that can lead us to having very negative mindsets and we need to consciously work together corporately at having a positive mindset as a church. I've found even as we've been doing this series just these few weeks and preparing for it and reading some of the books I've recommended, I, I have been feeling happier <laughs> as a consequence of thinking about this stuff, of more deliberately turning my mind towards what is positive rather than what is negative. And I'm very happy about that. I'm much happier when I'm happy. It's great. It's, much, it's just a nicer place to be. And we need to develop a kind of a positive thinking together. And, and that's regardless of your personality type. Sometimes we can think, well, it's extroverts who are positive. Now, it doesn't make any difference, I think, whether you're an introvert or extrovert. You can still have a positive frame of mind. And we're called together to have this positive thinking, this positive pattern. And so let's, let's resolve to be positively gospel-minded this week. When we're together, let's speak positively to each other. If we find that our conversation is tipping, as I know mine often does, towards what is negative or what is cynical or whatever, let's, let, let's have the boldness to say to one another, hey, let's, let's turn it up here. Let's, let's think about the encouragement we have in Christ. Let's turn our thoughts and our words positively. 
Because the default position and what we, the inputs we receive so much are negative. And if we're to know joy, the atmosphere amongst us needs to be one of positive thinking rather than of negative thinking. Let's be positively gospel-minded this week. Fourth thing that Paul says is that we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. My primary motivation in life should not be about what benefits me. And, and again, that tends to be our default position, that we engage in all kinds of subtle maneuvers in order to get ahead. No, we're to serve others because it's good to serve others. And also, wonderfully, serving others makes us happy. Now, that's been proved again and again. There's all been all kinds of surveys done over the years about who are the happiest groups of people and which are the happiest places to live and actually why is Mid-Sussex happier than Wolverhampton? There's all kinds of reasons, but one of the things that's been found again and again is that those communities, those areas where there's a high level of, of engagement, of people volunteering in different things, serving, the, the more volunteering you do and the more groups you're involved with, the higher your level of general well-being. The more that you give, the more that you get. And it's not surprising that surveys find that because that's the way that God has wired us. Because God is a God who serves and he's made us to serve. And so if we're not serving others, of course we're not going to maximize our joy. We're not. If we want to maximize our joy, then we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but we're to seek to serve each other. Conceit is a, a vain or exaggerated self-evaluation. And vanity is kind of valued in, in our society. But vanity doesn't lead to joy. Vanity just leads to unhappiness. If you're, if you're vain, it will always lead you to be unhappy because you'll always be seeking to look better and be presented better and people to think more of you and to be more the centre of attention. And every time that you're not that, it will make you unhappy. Vanity can't bring you into joy. And so let's serve one another in pursuit of joy. There's this kind of, kind of delicious paradox here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But the more that you serve one another, the happier you're going to be. So pursue that. Fifth thing, count others more significant than yourselves in humility. That means putting the interests of others above our own. And this would have been quite revolutionary, what Paul's urging here. Because in a Roman context, humility was not valued. Humility was seen as something actually to be avoided. Humility is a specifically Christian virtue, with Christ as our model. And I think we can sometimes misunderstand humility. We can sometimes think of humility as being kind of groveling, and humility as being something by which we always say, oh, I'm no good, and oh, I couldn't possibly do that, and oh, no, I couldn't possibly. And that's not humility. Actually, in a sense, that's, that's, a, that's a kind of arrogance. That's kind of vanity, really. That's, that's, that's not real humility. Real humility is full of moral strength and integrity. And it comes from this acknowledgement that we recognize our dependence upon God and upon other people. And we're then grateful to God for the blessings that we have. Real humility is when we recognize that I can't save myself. Actually, I can't do anything without other people. And the only reason that I can do things because of other people is because God has put those people in place. The only reason that I'm going to have food for lunch when I get home is because God 
has put soil on the earth and provided rain and crops that grow. And then there's a farmer who produces the stuff and there's a distribution chain that gets it to the shops and there are shops that are open. And if it wasn't for God and if it wasn't for the farmer and if it wasn't for the shops, then I would be hungry. I'm completely dependent. And if it wasn't for the cotton farmer somewhere in the world and the distribution chain, chains and the, and, and the shops, then I wouldn't have any clothes on. I'm completely dependent upon other people and ultimately dependent upon God. That's what real humility is. We recognize our dependence on God and upon other people, and rather than resisting and resenting that, we're grateful for it. Say, thank you, God, so much for your provision, for your supply, for your grace experienced in my life. And that kind of humility creates in us moral strength and integrity. And, of course, Jesus Christ is our model. He is the one who is fully... (coughs) ultimately completely humble but in no way groveling in no way sniveling in no way oh I couldn't possibly oh no I'm not worthy he's the one who serves from a place of humble strength he's our model he's our example and so we're to count others more significant than ourselves in humility which means that we defer to others because we want to be like Christ who has deferred to us and then the sixth thing is that we look to the interests of others. There's an intentional attention to the needs of other people. And our natural tendency as human beings is always to look to our own needs first, of course. But what we're called to do as Christians is to look to the interests of others. So again this week, what can I do to make life a bit better for somebody else? What things can I do which will improve the quality of someone else's life? What can I do close at home? What can I do for Grace and the kids, which is going to make them happier rather than more fed up? It's a very practical question for a dad, where it's easy to make your family fed up. What can I do this week to make my kids' lives happier? What can we do? What can we do in church life to make one another happier? How can we serve each other? What can we do to promote the interests of others? What can we do in our town to promote the interests of others? Let's make it tangible. Let's make it real. Joy is a corporate thing. We experience joy by being united together. We maximize our joy by experiencing the benefits of the gospel, and we do that corporately by together celebrating, proclaiming, sharing, reminding each other of the benefits of the gospel. And together we maximize joy as we are united and serve one another. It's very different from an individualistic approach to happiness. So let's Look to maximize our joy. Today, this week, let's seek to maximize our joy. No matter how old you are, whether you're one of those happy 70-year-olds or one of those miserable 50-year-olds, let's all seek to maximize our joy. Whether you live in Bournemouth or Paul, let's seek to maximize our joy. Let's experience the gospel together. Let's pursue unity. Let's celebrate all that Christ has done for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.